Welcome to the clean energy revolution from National Grid. I'm Helen Skelton and in this series I'm touring tech, towns and people across the planet. Why? Because our energy supply connects all of those things. And I want to understand how the future of our world and environments is in the hands of each and every one of us who uses electricity and gas. Some of the biggest revolutions in how we run our lives and tackle climate change and emissions are already happening. Governments, businesses and cities are doing their bit to help us open up our options and reach net zero. But there's so much going on. There's a lot to get our heads around. We need to know how everything is connected through the places we work, live and play. Today we're going to talk about heating. What will it look like in the future, in our homes and our workplaces? A lot of us have questions about what this means for our homes and our bank balances. I'll be finding out. We really need to have market transformation driving down the cost of these technologies. Heat pumps, you know, the upfront capital cost of heat pumps today is higher than that of a gas boiler. The UN says 68% of the world's population is expected to live in urban areas by 2050. So there's no better reason to make their energy run fairly, sustainably and efficiently. And ensure a better deal for people, businesses and the environment. You're doing it in a way which should be as hidden and as seamless as possible, making it really easy for people to choose a low carbon option. Today I'm going to find out how energy in our buildings is getting greener and smarter. I'm going to hear how National Grid is supporting new technologies in heating and find out how we're a part of it. Efficiency doesn't exactly sound very sexy, does it? But underneath that is some really exciting, some really clever science and technology. And what's more, innovation here completely depends on people and communities like ours embracing it. I'm joined now by Al Lalonde. Al is a senior technical specialist in the new customer energy management team for National Grid's downstate New York region, making Al the perfect person to help everyday people like you and me understand what we need to do to bring our home heating up to date. First of all, Al, good to speak to you. Thanks for making time. Thanks so much for having me. This is exciting. Talk to me about decarbonising heating. For Joe Public and myself, what does that even mean? Decarbonizing heating. So that is probably the largest energy consumer of us all in our homes is, is to heat our homes. With the pathway to decarbonization, it's all about first reducing your energy usage anywhere you can with increasing your efficiency. That could be installing low flow water devices. It could be insulating your home installing a higher efficiency boiler, for example. So doing those measures is all under the umbrella of energy efficiency work. Once you do that, then the next step is to weatherize your home completely. And that allows your building to be more resilient to the weather conditions outside. From there, you're, you're really in a good position to electrify your heat go to heat pumps and make sure that what you're installing is the right capacity for your building. Um, from there, we go to renewables. 
it's it's a whole process where it's we're building upon what we have, reducing energy in the beginning. It's the most cost-effective way um, and the first step toward decarbonizing your building. I feel like they're all the chapters in making our houses have less of an impact on the planet. And in terms of decarbonizing, if you're, I mean, you're in New York, I'm looking at New York and thinking there are a lot of challenges there because you've got a lot of people in relatively old buildings in a dense area. Absolutely. Commercial buildings have their own path and multifamily high-rise buildings have their own path. Single-family buildings have their own path. There are a lot of challenges when it comes to weatherizing your home or doing building envelope improvements just merely on the cost to install as well as the process of construction in general in New York City. You keep saying weatherize. Now to me, I weatherize my legs in the spring so that I get a good tan in the summer. You know, I get them out there, I get them ready for all weathers. How does weatherize apply to our homes? So you can think of our building envelope as as almost like our skin, right? What that protective layer does is, is make sure that the heat that transfers through the envelope. So in the summer, there's heat that is pouring into your home. And in the winter, there's heat escaping. But with the proper materials and more insulation in the walls, they are more resilient to that heat transfer. So not nearly as much um, will seep through. This also applies to um, air sealing your home. So if you have a lot of drafty windows, if you feel a draft when it's windy out, you're losing or gaining too much heat. And I feel like the will of the people is there, isn't it? People want to do their bit and they want to save money on their energy bills. Insulation feels like something that we can all get our heads around and we can easily do. Yep, absolutely. That and air sealing. Air sealing is less costly, actually, as well. So being able to caulk around your window frames or weather strip your doors or just make sure that anywhere there's cracks within the building envelope, they're sealed properly. It can do, um, you know, a great deal for your energy bills, probably save you up to five to 10 percent. Talk to me about the My Heat campaign, because I had a little look at some of the thermal imaging. And for me, I was like, oh, this it feels it's kind of exciting as when we first started seeing Google Maps. How are you using that to engage people in a move towards net zero? For multifamily buildings and single family that are in downstate New York, we really needed to talk to the customers and reach them where they are. One powerful tool for that is my heat and having a visual representation of heat loss because we can't see heat loss, but a thermal camera can. So the my heat information is, is really a thermal image from above of your home. So you can see in the red areas where you're losing more heat and in the bluer areas is where actually you're, d you're doing pretty well. So it's a, it's a great visual tool to engage our customers. And um, it also includes a My Heat rating. So you can see how your home is performing in terms of heat loss in comparison to your community around you, similar buildings and citywide. 
And presumably from a technical point of view, having that information about how houses are losing heat and when houses are using energy is really, really useful long term in terms of what you need to do strategy wise. But in the short term, I'm guessing it's very useful at winning over hearts and minds because like you said, the scale and the speed at which decarbonising heat needs to happen is important. You need people with you. You need people on board and willing to accept changes and transitions, right? Absolutely. We we can't do this alone. Not one company, not one community can do this alone. It's it's really going to take all of us to do our part. And that's the that's to me is the the critical piece in all of this is how do you inspire people to take the steps they can to be part of the solution? What are you trying to persuade customers to do? Reduce their energy consumption. So reduce the the energy you use to heat your home. If we're able to do some low cost, no cost type improvements, that would be a great way to start. Thank you, Al. That is just one of the ways that National Grid is helping people understand the road to net zero over in the States. But this is an international mission and all of those smaller changes contribute to a bigger picture. Let's talk about the cities and communities our buildings add up to. By looking at ways of tackling the carbon footprint on the small and the large scale, we can start to think collectively about the impact of cities and use clever tech to make changes. Have you heard the term Internet of Things? This idea suggests that by connecting any device to the internet, you can connect data and information about usage with the environment around them. Now, a lot of innovation is built upon this principle of using collective data to make services run better. That's how building and street lighting and heating systems can run. So that energy is only used when it's needed, saving on the money and carbon emissions. What's more, Rolling out this kind of tech in our communities can create data that can be used to inform transport design, roadworks, policing, the list goes on. We've talked about one big challenge to decarbonising the built environment, and that's transport, in an earlier episode. Now, though, let's turn our attention to heating on a city-wide scale. So I'm joined now by National Grid's Courtney Eichhorst, the strategy lead analyst at National Grid's US strategy team to find out more. Courtney, let's begin by talking about a smart city. It includes a lot of technologies and and services, but what does it actually mean and how important is a smart city to what National Grid is trying to do? Yeah, good question. Smart city is a term that's used a lot and has, I think, a few different meanings. But really, it comes down to being smarter with data and smart technology that can include both hardware like sensors and software to create better outcomes for our communities. So using energy more efficiently, making sure that our devices have the proper controls to be able to optimize our energy use. Efficiency doesn't exactly sound very sexy, but underneath that is some really exciting, some really clever science and technology. So in the same way that we might have a smart home, you know, and use different gadgets so that people can use their energy efficiently and reduce their bills. Is it sort of that, but on a citywide scale? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, a lot of different cities are doing different things. For some cities, it's about smart streetlights. For other cities, it might be about smart water infrastructure. You know, the impacts that one home can make in using their energy more efficiently can be multiplied when you look at 
homes that adopt this technology across the city. There are certain times of day where energy is more expensive because we have higher demand. So if we can help to optimize that energy use, you know, you're not necessarily going to get every single home to change their behavior. But if you can have multiple devices across multiple homes, then you, with the right signals and incentives, you can actually optimize your energy use at a system level by having the right devices in lots of different homes. And how useful would a smart city be to what National Grid's trying to do in terms of making energy greener? Yeah, so I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things happening over the next few decades. You know, as we transition to more renewable energy, and that energy is more intermittent, you know, we're really trying to make sure that we can adapt our energy use so that our demand can match supply. You know, that's very different from the last century where, you know, you turned on your coal plant when demand was going up. Now we're really trying, we've shifted away from coal almost entirely in the Northeast U.S. And we're actually at about 50% zero carbon power in the Northeast U.S., Uh, with an increasing portion of renewables like solar and wind. We cannot talk about demand and homes without talking about heating. Why is heating, and particularly the way we heat our homes, such a huge part of meeting net zero goals? Well, first of all, heating is a huge part of our overall energy missions. That's all the heating that we use to heat our homes and buildings, as well as process heat from industry. Um, you know, most of the customers in the Northeast U.S. heat with gas, but there's also a large share that still heat with oil. Oil is the dirtiest, uh, most carbon intensive fuel, and it's also expensive. And of course, oil prices can be volatile, so that also can create uncertainty. Clearly, there's a lot to do then. What needs to happen to get to net zero in terms of heating? Yeah, so there's a lot of different strategies and solutions for decarbonizing heat. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of customers on gas or oil, some customers that are heating with electricity. So we have to figure out how can we transition all of that supply for heating to zero carbon sources. For electricity, we kind of already have that figured out. Not to say it's still very complex, but generally we, we know that we can transition that um, electricity to zero carbon sources. And for our other fuels, it's about one, becoming more efficient, Um, two, uh, electrification of end uses, and three, also looking at decarbonizing the gas network with low and zero carbon fuels. What does that mean, decarbonizing the gas network? It's sort of like when we talk about decarbonizing the electricity network, we sort of understand that that kind of happens behind the scene. It's about transitioning the supply behind the scene to customers. We have all these pipes under the ground, and today we flow natural gas through them. However, in the future, we could start transitioning that natural gas to other forms of gas. Um, and there are kind of two main categories, I suppose, that, that we're thinking about. One is renewable natural gas, or RNG, which is a term that's used um, to encompass any types of gases that come from wastewater treatments or landfills. These are methane gases that would just be going up into the atmosphere, and it's capturing them, turning them into pipeline quality gas and injecting them into the pipeline. And then there's also hydrogen. And I know you talked about hydrogen a bit on a previous episode, and that's a gas that can be created with zero carbon electricity. And it's a gas that could also be blended into the network to help displace natural gas. Whenever I talk to anybody at National Grid or anybody who knows about energy, they say the solution is going to be a mosaic of different things. I agree. It will definitely be a mosaic of different solutions. I think there's a lot of innovation going on, but there's also there are barriers in place to achieving net zero, and I think one of those is cost. So I think one of the biggest things that we need to do over the next decade is get market transformation across all these new technologies. Heat pumps, you know, the upfront capital cost of heat pumps today is higher than that of a gas boiler. 
renewable natural gas, RNG and hydrogen are about three to eight times more expensive than natural gas. We really need to have market transformation driving down the cost of these technologies and bringing them to scale so that we can reach net zero fast enough by 2050. A lot of it always comes down to cost, doesn't it? Individuals need to do their bit, but they are worried about cost. They're worried about changing their boiler, getting solar panels, etc., etc. But I guess it's speculate to accumulate. The technologies are really already there. Cold climate heat pump technology has really advanced a lot so that the technology is there to be able to put these solutions out. Um, but it's, you know, a consumer that when their heater breaks down and they're looking for what alternatives to place it with, are they going to choose the $6,000 gas boiler or the fifteen to $30,000 heat pump? You know, if you can create the financing solutions that can help that decision, that's one thing. Not every solution makes sense for every home. We found that for new homes that are already very efficient, heat pumps can make, make a lot of sense. Sometimes for, for large, more complex buildings, electrification can be challenging. And so that's where we're looking to low and zero carbon fuels to play a role. A green and carbon neutral future depends upon people, businesses and communities around the world taking action in energy saving. The heating sector accounts for 37% of UK emissions. We need to talk about what this looks like in our homes. But first, let's look at a vital stepping stone in between, our businesses. They all have a stake and a huge role to play in transforming our habits and behaviours and making the change to clean energy easier. I'm joined by Rob Cheesewright, Director at Smart Energy GB, and Jess Ralston, Analyst at Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, to chat more about what opportunities there are for businesses to embrace smart tech, manage energy in their buildings better, and play their part in the path to net zero. Rob, talk to me about some examples of businesses that are already using smart tech to make their energy usage greener. Yeah, it's already starting to happen across the country. There are now millions of businesses that either have a smart or advanced meter, which means their meter sends the information to the energy supplier, but also you then get that data as a business so you can start to cut your energy use. Firstly, they don't get estimated energy bills anymore. And that's crucial because as a business, you need to know what you're spending your money on and, and get control of costs. So a lot of them have been able to then have a conversation with their supplier about you know how much they're paying and get that down. But then they're also able to go around the business and see what's kind of drinking energy in the same way we all can around our homes if we've got a smart meter. And then it can get smarter still from there. So you've got, if you've got a business that has lots of fridges in it, that can essentially act as a bank of batteries almost. And you can sell energy back to the grid in the future from that. Or if your business has a car park and you can charge people's electric vehicles at off-peak times, you can save all your employees' money. It's going to completely accelerate. Because let's talk about how useful that information is, because from an analyst point of view, Jess, surely you're using that to make the next steps, which need to happen quickly. But, you know, from a cynic's point of view, I might be thinking, well, it doesn't matter. I know I use loads of energy, but surely I need to crack on and start reducing that energy. How useful is it to have all of that information? I think it's massively important. Like Rob said, how are you meant to be able to reduce your impacts when you don't even know where the most impact is being had? Things like, you know, boilers, you don't really realise how much energy those use. If you flick on a kettle, you can see your smart meter suddenly explode in, in energy use, but you wouldn't necessarily think that unless you've seen it. So it's things like that where the information just becomes obvious to, yeah, not only business owners, but homeowners as well. And I suppose from a business point of view, both of you, 
it, yes, there is that emotional driver that we all know we need to do our bit. But if you are an employer, seeing the financial impact is going to sort of put a rocket up you as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think you can have insulation in your building, draft proofing your windows and doors and stuff like that. As soon as you've got those measures in place, you can start to see the savings in your bills. So yeah, I think it's, it's really important to be able to, to make that economic case as well as the environmental one. And then the other side of it is as an employer as well, you know, so many of us now will only really work for companies who we feel are doing the right thing. And actually, most of us want to only shop or, or trade with businesses that we feel are doing the right thing. It's interesting that you say that, Rob, because anecdotally, I was talking to somebody about that at the weekend. You, the next generation are going into workplaces that are green minded, but you're already seeing that in play, are you? Yeah, absolutely. And in all sorts of ways, really. I think we're just being more discerning about where we work, whether that's because of COVID, we got used to working from home and we don't really fancy going back to the office five days a week, or whether it's more about mission and purpose. People do seem to be much more choosy about where they work. You mentioned the pandemic there. Jess, how has COVID-19 had an impact on green business agendas? I think for me and for many people, actually, the pandemic's really put into perspective the importance of nature and the environment. And I think we're starting to see that filter through into people's actions now. You know, I think people have started to place real increased importance on the environment. And at the moment, it's actually the, the second biggest issue for the British public behind the pandemic. So that just highlights how much people want to do the right thing. And I think with businesses as well, they're in the same position. Their consumers are starting to demand greener, cleaner products. You know, um, I think a third of people now are eating more vegetarian meals than they were before and restaurants and supermarkets have to cater to those markets more than ever. As we move forwards, people will start to try and rebuild in a greener way. Going back to some of the examples that Rob mentioned when we first started chatting, I feel like if you are a a shop or a small bakery or cafe or whatever, you could put a smart meter in and you could do a couple of things to make small steps. But what if you are a big bakery, for instance, or you know a big tin of beans factory? How much more challenging is it to transition to a greener energy source in in those environments there's some energy efficiency and industrial efficiency measures which businesses that are quite large in scale can implement to really make sure they're reducing their energy demand as much as possible that's things like making their their buildings and their factories less leaky so we're having lots of insulation making sure that they're using the right products for those buildings and also then if you switch your your heating source away from fossil fuels, which is things like gas boilers, you're starting to make huge differences. If we have the money and we're in a world where people want this and we have the technologies, surely it's just down to a few business people being brave enough to say, right, we're going to crack on and, and invest and speculate to accumulate. It comes down to, I think, two things, that mindset and that being part of your business strategy and it being the core of your business strategy, not just a thing you do on the side. And once you've decided that, I think you can then run at it at full steam. But then it, it does come down to, to capital, to cash. At the end of the day, a lot of businesses don't have lots of cash lying around. You know, I think the onus is on government to make sure that the money is there to do this. I think, like Rob said, government can play a huge role in just providing that stability and then allowing the market to deliver the, the rapid changes that we think will be needed. There's loads of good examples in the UK of that already happening, where government support in the first place has really blossomed a huge industry. If you take offshore wind, the government basically worked with the industry at the start of the, the big boom in wind and said, OK, if you are able to, to reach these targets, you know, we'll give this amount of investment. The wind industry just ran with it. And then now they're one of the cheapest sources of, of energy that we have. 
We've talked a lot about transition, but when you were mentioning opportunities, there's opportunities for new businesses and new technologies and new workforces. Other people might look at this landscape and see a challenge and see some, you know, targets that are difficult to reach. You, however, Rob, are looking at this, I can tell, with a lot of energy and enthusiasm. Are you in the minority or is your attitude reflected in the industry? I think in many cases, yes. I think sometimes the upfront capital cost is so high that you need to come up with a you need to be really clever and artful about how you finance it. So it might be that they can do that and they can get that money from the private sector. And you can get loans, release more equity in their business, whatever else. But it might be that just a little bit of help, maybe matched funding, things like that, can be the thing that just tips the business case over the edge from something that's very difficult to do to something that's both economic sense as well as ecological sense. And then it will happen much faster. So I'm not saying government is the solution and has all the answers, but I do think they can speed things along the way. There's government estimates that the green economy will grow by about 11% over the next few years, whereas the economy as a whole will grow 1% to 2%. So you can see, see the stark differences there between green growth and whole economy growth. And there's, there's hubs for different industries in different areas. You've got electric vehicles in the West Midlands. You've got offshore wind industry in the northeast. These are all areas that are crucial to what the government's been saying about levelling up and building back better. So there's a lot of, of crossover between green growth, levelling up and what the government said it's going to do. So it's, it's, yeah, it's really positive. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Jess. So it's clear, industry and businesses have big decisions to make when it comes to managing energy in their work buildings. But one of the questions we are all left with is what can we do at home? And when we're talking about heating, there are plenty of furrowed brows to be found. And that is for good reason. There's more than one way of decarbonising gas central heating in our homes. But many people are worried about the costs, the timelines for new technologies, let alone how they work. There's no doubt we are living in a much more mindful time, with many people wondering about how their daily habits add up to and impact on our world's climate and resources regardless of our age or past habits. Research done by National Grid found that a whopping 38% of UK adults felt hopeless about their own role in fighting climate change. That's why earlier this year they launched the green light signal. I don't know if you've seen them. It's fun, it's a low energy smart bulb, it tells you the cleanest times of day that you can use electricity. That is when most of your energy is from clean or green sources. It flashes green, it alerts you to when the energy that you are using is from a green source and it really does help you do your bit to use clean energy. My kids love it. Anyway, you can check the show notes if you want to order one yourself. That's just one of the smart solutions available to help us make everyday life and energy use more sustainable. To finish this episode, I want to come back up a level to look at how energy innovation is already happening across our cities and neighbourhoods and not just in the UK and US, but through smart international collaborations. Next, I'm joined by someone who can share a few more of those ideas. Nathan Pierce is the Programme Director of Sharing Cities. Nathan, talk to me about Sharing Cities. What's the big idea? Well, Sharing Cities is a large-scale European programme. And the idea is, is this programme is about bringing cities together to test out a range of different types of green tech and digital infrastructure technologies to see what works, see how they interact with each other, and then scale up what's successful to either the rest of the city that we tested in or to the European market or the worldwide market as well. 
It's all about real world testing. Now, the cities that we are testing in are London and London is the lead city. And within London, it's in Greenwich, the downtown area of Greenwich around the, the famous historical park. And um, we're also testing in Milan. We're also testing in Lisbon. And they're what are called the lighthouse cities where all of this technology is being implemented using the grant. And then we have what we call our free fellow cities. And they are there to learn from the free larger cities, as it were, to see what works and to see what they could replicate in their cities. And that is Warsaw in Poland, Bordeaux in France and Burgash in Bulgaria. So in the UK, places like Greenwich in London will be a sort of pilot for smart communities going forward. But what does this look like in terms of energy use in our homes and communities? The technology that we're testing in sharing cities is quite wide and varied, but it all has a low carbon angle to it. So we're testing things like retrofitting hundreds and hundreds of apartments across all of those cities with the latest in technology to make them zero carbon. We've been testing a range of mobility solutions like e-bikes, EV sharing, converting entire council fleets to electric cars, um, smart parking, etc., etc. We've been doing thousands of smart lampposts around about 3,000 smart lampposts across those three cities from temperature sensors to noise sensors to EV charging and and so on. And then we've been doing a lot with data. So we've implemented a data platform in each of those cities and we've done quite a lot in terms of citizen behaviour and incentivisation. So how do you encourage people to get out of their cars and use an e-bike or or use a low-carbon option? So whatever we do, I think it's really important that we have a conversation with citizens and residents about what they're happy to see on their streets and what they actually find is useful to. But how do we get ordinary people, you know, people doing their jobs and looking after their families, actively engaging in innovation? There's kind of two parts to this answer. I think the first part is really successful technology means that you shouldn't have to have any engagement at all. And by that, what I mean is that the tech that we've tested is all about making your buildings and transport more efficient and low carbon. And you're doing it in a way which should be as hidden and as seamless as possible, making it really easy for people to choose a low carbon option. It's just the easiest option. And then I also think there's a wider conversation with citizens about what is the feeling around data collection and data sharing? What are people actually happy to share? What are people happy to use? Now, at the moment, that's very much been left to local areas to have that conversation themselves. And lots of areas are. But what you're having now is multiple conversations taking place all over the UK. And uh, my feeling is, is that we definitely need some kind of coordination and, and potentially regulation. There are so many smart devices we can install in our homes today. Smoke alarms, TVs, lighting, sound systems. In terms of actually reducing our carbon footprint, though, take me through what people can be doing in their homes to make them smarter in terms of energy usage. What we have looked at specifically in sharing cities is how you retrofit our existing housing stock to become more energy efficient. But the way that you would experience that retrofit in your own house, obviously you would have a few weeks of unrest where we actually had to go in and retrofit your building and and carry out the building works. But once that's completed, it should all be about having a much warmer home, much better insulation, but then digital controls that are put in that monitor the climate, monitor the way that you use that building and the way that you use each different room and predict and optimise according to that. So instead of just 
having the heating come on at a specific time every time and heating up no matter what it understands how you're using the building it can see how you change controls and it can react accordingly and this really starts to come into its own when you do it across multiple dwellings so large blocks of flats with maybe you know 20 30 40 apartments in there because what you can then start to look at doing is saying well does everybody need their own boiler or could we actually start to create heating systems that heat the whole building and can provide heat and energy as and when it's needed and then you start to link in things like renewable energy sources so solar panels heat pumps for the heating as well and you use digital systems to optimize you use battery to store that and in the end you end up with a building which can effectively start to manage itself it can talk to the building managers and tell them when something's wrong when there's potentially damp so there's a huge amount of things that we can do and i think it's really important that they're kind of looked at as a whole what we we label this is what we call a deep energy retrofit so it's not just about putting insulation new windows in it's all of the technology that goes with it so i think this is how somebody would experience it in their home obviously then it's quite a different situation when you go out into the street and interact with transport and infrastructure and lighting and, and so on so how are we going to make sure that all of these opportunities are available to everybody? You know, smart home tech requires internet access. It requires you knowing a bit about how it works. The crucial part of being able to deploy these kind of solutions is to have good internet and good energy. And then there's also a kind of social aspect to this as well. You know, people not being able to afford technology they need to access the internet and access these kind of services. These are lots of things and I think they're very kind of modern problems and I think they're very real problems. The big challenge here really is is money. You know, in order to get these fibre connections across the whole of the cities and out into smaller towns and villages across the country, you need investment. I know this is something that the government are looking at as a priority. Thank you, Nathan. That was a really good look at how we can use smart technology to make sure the energy we use in our homes, businesses, communities and cities is as efficient as it can be. But smart tech can go beyond making our services cleverer. There's clearly still work to be done in making sure that every citizen can participate fairly in our net zero future. What is clear is that technology and data can offer solutions to better use our planet's finite resources find better ways of living and provide insight that can scale from individuals to systems. The technology is already available to make our homes fit for the future, but each kind of home and region will have different needs when it comes to insulating and installing decarbonised heating options. Crowdsourced apps and data mean that many more of us have a chance to understand and participate in decision making and information sharing. We just need to make sure that it truly benefits all of us. What I've been told today shows that we really need some commitments from the governments around the world, which is why next month is going to be enormous for the future of our planet. The United Nations Climate Change Conference COP26 comes to Glasgow this November, and I'll be bringing you a special episode to review the breakthroughs and conversations there. Follow this podcast on your favourite app and don't miss it. Thanks for listening to the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. I'm Helen Skelton and I'll be back next time.